The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Mr. Frazier has been chief of research at Eric's Electronics for five years, and I can tell you he is a hard-minded scientist. I have read reports about Mr. Fraser, and Mrs. Fraser is a distinguished mathematician, holder of the Rensselaer chair at the Midland University. Then you can appreciate how they're working together, like the Curies did on radium. They've made a profound discovery. Mr. Hartley, I had very little to do with it. My husband's a genius. <laughs> Mr. Fraser, that's quite a compliment. Are you a genius? Mr. Hartley, I'm sure you are well aware of invisible forces at work in the universe. Forces that are so simple, children play with them. Yet so powerful that entire cities draw electrical energy from their depths. Now these are two bar magnets. And there is a field of force surrounding them, which is invisible, connecting them. Yet it does exert an actual influence upon matter. It literally reaches out across space. Turn one around, and the opposite poles repel. I agree with you, Mr. Fraser. The magnet is very mysterious. Now follow me, sir. In our experiments, we have discovered that the force surrounding a magnet is really an extension of mass. Well, how shall I say it? Mass that extends into another dimension. No, I don't follow you, Mr. Fraser. Well, let me put it this way. This magnet is really a miniature model of all things. The earth, sun, trees, cells. Everything is shaped by magnetic fields. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 29, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Well, we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be so welcome to the show today, and it proves to be a hot one today because we're going to be talking about climate change again. But this is because there's been a major, profound discovery. And we're joined in the studio today by a, a past guest of ours, Professor Christopher Essex, Professor and Associate Chair, Department of Applied Mathematics here at the University of Western Ontario, and um, co-author of Taken by Storm. He's also... Uh, the author of A Complete Guide to Calculus. <laughs> complete com uh, Calculus, complete course. But uh, I don't think that has anything to do with today's topic, so don't worry. Calculus makes me scared, too. Um, he's been denounced in Parliament of Canada for being a global warming denier. He uh, has been cited on the floor of the U.S. Senate, and he's got a blessing by the Pope. <laughs> Welcome to the show today, Chris. Thanks. Actually, it's not a blessing from the Pope, but uh, a high, an official at the Vatican. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, okay. close enough, I suppose. <laughs> close enough to the Pope, I suppose. I, yeah. I, I should maybe uh, tell you at some point about uh, uh, my discovery of fractals on the floor of the Vatican Museum, but we'll, we'll discuss that at another point, maybe. <laughs> oh, sounds like a novel coming up here. That's right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Dan Brown, you know. There's been a recent um, article um, 
in the National Post that I read about this from Lauren Solomon about um, a discovery at CERN. Now, CERN, of course, is over in um, Switzerland, France, and it's uh, the Large Hadron Collider smashing particles together, getting uh, some uh, subatomic particles that travel really, really fast, smashing them together, and you get up off some radiation, uh, which mimic cosmic rays, I understand. And there's been an experiment over there in a cloud chamber to... Um, well, I'm not going to talk anymore about it. You're the expert. Why don't you tell us what's going on? What, what What's this experiment in CERN about in the cloud chamber, and what has it shown? Uh, let me see. Um, basically, what you have is you... Um, I don't know where to begin. Should I begin with the particle physics, or should I begin with climate? Uh, let's, let's see. Let's begin with climate. Okay. Uh, the the issue of climate uh, is, of course, as you, everyone knows, is a big, high-profile topic uh, with uh, a lot of um, uh, political uh, energy, a lot of uh, financial uh, energy behind it, and so forth. But there's also a lot of science in it. It's very um, complex and very deep subject. And, you know, I've talked about it here before, um, uh, um, one of the things that happens is, is cloud formation. Uh, that's an important issue uh, in connection with what's happening regarding, clim regarding climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, clouds uh, tend to form from water droplets, and water droplets form around small particles suspended in the atmosphere known as aerosols. And these are very small. Uh, they uh, range from millimeter size things all the way down to uh, nanometers uh, in range. And uh, they all have different kinds of properties. They have different terminal velocities when falling out of the atmosphere and so forth. Um, and uh, <laughs> okay. so, so, um, so we, we have all of these uh, different kinds of things going on. And one of the mechanisms for uh, forming clouds or forming aerosols, which then lead to clouds, has to do with uh, the, uh, uh, well, this is the thing that's on, it's on the table here, is to the extent to which um, external uh, cosmic uh, particles cause the formation of these aerosols, which then lead to the formation of clouds. And that's basically the issue. And uh, then if you connect that up with solar changes, uh, then we le it leads us to uh, the question of are we observing variations in climate that are due to changes in um, uh, changes in the sun, or are they having to do with things that we've done? And of course, that's the real uh, issue from the point of view of the politics of all of this. And the uh, is uh, are is uh, to what extent are humans responsible for changes that we observe, and to what extent is it natural? Is it driven by the sun or not? And this provides something that's kind of a missing piece or a missing link that has uh, frustrated uh, meteorologists for a long time because it could observe correlations between uh, the the solar activity and certain things we observe on the earth and this this is very strongly suggestive that that this may be associated with it and what they did at CERN was to actually try to recreate this thing in a controlled context and uh, found encouraging results for this kind of thinking um, so I should just leave it there for now. Yeah, that's a good place to leave it because yes. that's actually very complex. Um, mm -hmm. I've been reading actually some of the press releases and watch the videos right out of CERN, and I would encourage people to Google CERN on the Internet, go there and have a look at some of the experiments that are going on there and uh, get a really in-depth explanation of this. And anybody who out there who has basically passed their high school chemistry should be able to have a, 
uh, a good understanding of what's going on there because they're talking about just aerosols, um, uh, sulfur, what is it, sulfuric acid and ammonia in the atmosphere combined with water. They're talking particularly about, about I mean, aerosols are basically um, particles. It can yeah. be like dust and so forth. But this is a particular class of aerosols they're talking about is actually uh, um, uh, molecular clusters. Which has a which have a very particular kind of uh, physics associated with them. And a lot of people study clusters just uh, in their own right. And uh, what they've been trying to do is actually well, the clusters apparently can then lead to when sufficiently large can can become effective uh, condensation nuclei. Right. Yeah. So quite a complex issue. And from my pers- our perspective, from uh, Bob and I's perspective, is the political angle of all this because <laughs> for 20 years the international panel on climate change the un body um, gathered and basically said that it's humans that's causing global warming that's all they were charged with actually investigating they said that they only had a mandate to investigate man-made causes of climate change and so when you look for something you're going to find it and so they're coming out there and and saying that Global warming is our fault, therefore we have to change our habits, of course causing uh, major uh, economic upheaval in the world, uh, creating jobs and destroying jobs and spending trillions of dollars, when in fact, at the very same time that the IPCC panel actually convened for the first time back in the 90s, some Danish scientists basically said, no, hang on a minute, minute, it's the sun. And so the IPCC basically tried to discredit these Danish scientists. Well, I think this might be a good time to bring in our second guest then. Because he's oh, very good. At, at great length. Um, I understand he's with us. Is he, Ed? Yes, he is. And joining us on the line, are you there, Larry? Yes, I am. How are you? Welcome back. Joining Thank us you. on the line. Glad that, to be back. <laughs> that voice you hear is Larry Solomon, Executive Director of Energy Probe, and, of course, National Post columnist who has been on our show once before on this issue and um larry it was you that broke this story the first time at least that i heard of it and um is this you know what what strikes me as odd is it seems an incredibly significant event and yet i'm really only reading about it in the national post (laughs) is is there some significance to that as well well i agree it is it is a a very significant uh, event um and the the press (laughs) The press tends to be quite selective in what uh, in what it reports when the global warming issue is involved, <clears throat> and this, uh, I'm afraid, is a, another example. Uh, the evidence here does not uh, at all support the view of those who who blame humans for uh, for warming on uh, the planet, um, and for that reason, it uh, it has received scant publicity uh, in Canada or or in other countries. Well, wouldn't, wouldn't something, as, I guess, as factual as this command some attention? Like, what are, what are the premises on which we can count on our news media to report events on? I mean... Um, now, now, in part, it's not entirely the news media's fault, because uh, CERN itself, the, the organization that, that produced these, uh, these startling results, um, w- tried, tried its best to downplay them even before the results were public the director general of cern told the research scientists not not really not to be clear about um what the what the potential uh, implications are to 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 downplay it to to note that this is only one of many many factors involved with the with the the climate 
And this is uh, part of the history of this entire project because uh, the scientists who wanted to do this work uh, were, were delayed for something like a decade uh, because governments did not want them to do the work, did not want to see if, in fact, the, the sun and cosmic rays played a, a very large role in warming on Earth. Now, could it be that the administration of CERN were being cautious as uh, cautious scientists rather than politicians? Do you think that might be the case? Well, certainly it, it might be the case. The, what happened was the, uh, the, the scientist uh, who wanted to do this work, his name was Kirkby, um, mm-hmm. he was very impressed by the results that the, the Danish scientists had because they, they appeared to be able to to uh, to recreate the uh, cloud seedings um, in a in a chamber, but it wasn't a, it, it wasn't as sophisticated a job as would have been possible by CERN. So this scientist at CERN, impressed by what he saw from the Danes, uh, made public statements that that he he was going to be doing this work at, at for CERN, and that um, and that he believed that cosmic rays and the sun could account for the majority or maybe all of the warming um, that, uh, that w- we've been uh, experiencing on Earth. Well, after he made those, those statements, suddenly his funding was cut off. Hmm. Uh, suddenly he was unable to uh, proceed, and, and he also stopped talking about the, uh, uh, the, the project. So it's very hard to know exactly what did go on, because there was a kind of a blackout. But... Um, uh, but one thing is clear, as soon as he announced the potential uh, for, uh, 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 for, for uh, global warming um, to be caused by, uh, by cosmic rays on the sun and not primarily by humans, as soon as he made that announcement, um, everything was shut down. Understood. Yeah, very political uh, and highly charged. I should say that. I just want to jump in here. By the way, hi, Larry. This. <laughs> hi, Christopher. How are you? <laughs> yeah, not bad. Um, I, I just wanted to sort of throw in. I was actually with Svensmark, um, Henrik Svensmark, who's the, the actual scientist behind this, and in, uh, in Denmark, the, the the main central figure. I was with him when the, this the cloud story broke, uh, the CERN story broke, um, and uh, there's a lot. Going on behind the scenes that uh, that isn't that you know, in, since we're talking about you know skullduggery and the weirdness of science uh, culture and so forth, um, I, I know that uh, there was a lot of talk about Svensmark doing the um, doing the uh, the experiment itself at CERN, and uh, he was kind of pushed off of it by certain. I'll just just say certain you know, high-profile Nobel laureate uh, who. Uh, uh, is well known to be part of this sort of general sort of IPCC thrust on things, and um, and I would also add you'll probably note a conspicuous absence because uh, in, in the in the uh, citations in the uh, CERN article, the uh, the actual uh, original experiments were done actually when I was in Copenhagen, or just about that period, just maybe a little bit after when he actually got results, but he was starting it up then. Um, and uh, uh, the, he, the, the results of Cloud actually reproduced a, a smaller scale uh, kind of project that uh, they did in, in Copenhagen. At, I think is a, uh, it was probably at Niels Bohr where it was uh, originally put together. Um, 
and uh, um, uh, it's they published a paper, and it wasn't even cited in the uh, <laughs> the paper on that. They, they cited the original speculations about it, but the actual results, which agree with uh, what with what uh, CERN has done, uh, uh, was not cited, uh, which I think is a bit of a, a slight, uh, but from a scientific point of view, and that I think also tells us volumes. Well, it certainly seems that there's a lot of politics involved in even science and that people have, you know, so-called agendas, which uh, seem to be behind all of the research. I'm going to take a quick break now, and that's something I want to look into is, is you know, who is CERN? What does CERN do in a way? You were right there sort of just last month, weren't you? Well, I was in, I was in Sicily. This was in Sicily. It oh. wasn't it's, you know, at CERN, although I was at an event run by an organization that's based out of CERN. So you know all about the... You, you're pretty there on the front line, so you heard about well, it. Well, certainly uh, in, in yeah. terms of Svensmark, yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll take a quick yeah. break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. And what we have discovered in this invisible field is a doorway... You make Mrs. Palmer sound uh, commonplace. I can assure you, we're talking cold, professional science. And it does make Mrs. Palmer look about as normal as blueberry pie. But if you discovered a doorway, why do you need me? It takes power to open the door, Mr. Hartley. Pure power. Financial power. Yes, sir. It takes a great deal of money to generate the electrical energy necessary in the amounts we need to accomplish our purpose. With all of the power in the generators at Arex, we could only open the door at a tiny crack. If I close the window. Oh, uh, they're closed. Would you have an apricot cookie? Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, I, uh, I can't see them. I made them myself this morning. Where are they? You know, if it wasn't for me, Anthony would never have a home-cooked meal. The last time I was in a fog like this was at sea on the Atlantic. Oh, really? Did you have an ice crossing? We were afraid of hitting an iceberg. We never have fogs like this in Bridgeport. I've never heard of a fog inside a house. <laughs> Neither have I. Isn't it splendid? Splendid? You don't mind it? Oh, not at all. Don't you know? It's marvelous for the complexion. <laughs> Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW, where you can call 519-661 to speak to either of our guests, Professor Christopher Essex of the Department of Applied Mathematics right here at the University of Western Ontario, also past director of theoretical physics and co-author of Taken by Storm. And on the line we have with us Larry Solomon, executive director of Energy Probe and National Post columnist. Now, we just heard that silly little clip from... I think it was from My Dream of Genie. I, I watch too many of these silly shows. <laughs> but um, certainly, when we talk about a cloud chamber, we're not. there's no fog in there that people are watching and witnessing this in, in a physical way. This is all... How, how is it actually witnessed? Is it witnessed um, by looking just at graphs and studying very mathematical uh, computer outputs? Or, or how are... Because I understand most of this activity occurs at 
microscopic uh, levels. We can't really – can we actually see something? Um, well, first of all, the, the uh, I, I, first of all, I'm not uh, an experimentalist. Uh, mm. So, but I would say that first of all, if, if you know how a, uh, a classical cloud chamber works, you have uh, you have some sort of uh, uh, vapor very near its condensation point, and uh, what what happens is these particles are are as they move through are just the the uh, the, the straw that uh, that causes the the change. Um, to condensation, and so you actually can see streaks, and you can actually count them. And if, if it's like that, then they can actually just you know have, have counters on them and actually mm-hmm. just just count it. Um, the the interesting thing about it, though, is that um, uh, apparently they needed to uh, uh, put put a a, a a charge across the whole thing, a field across it, to pull out the. Um, the, the aerosols that are already there, the ions mm-hmm. that are forming, to keep it as clean and clear as possible. Because the the point is that they'd have this completely pure cloud chamber and uh, the uh, normal cosmic rays that would come into the building and go in would actually create condensation nuclei. <laughs> they, had, they had to allow it, uh, clean it all out so they could see what their, their particular uh, uh, particles would do now, because the cosmic rays were already there doing you, it. You know, I had... I had... <laughs> I had some difficulty with this concept of cosmic rays. Robert Robert was thinking I was a little silly not even knowing this yesterday when we were having this conversation. No, not at all, Bob. But what did you get in chemistry in high school again? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 26%. Okay. But you know, when I first heard... Uh, when, Larry, when I first heard you talking about this, and I heard you on, a, on another radio show talking about this, and we were talking about cosmic rays... I assume that the rays we were talking about were like from the sun because we we're talking about influence of the sun. No, but you're not talking about. But no. does the sun even? Oh, the sun send contributes. Out uh, they're they're only they're they're really low, low relatively energy. low energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're K, keV as they would say, uh, K, uh, thousands of electron volts. Electron volt is the is the uh, amount of energy that uh, uh, an electron goes uh, through get gains from falling through a potential of one volt. And so the cosmic it's, it's rays are 10 to the 20 electron volts, aren't Yeah, they? but those are very rare. I mean, so it goes all the way up from uh, thousands to uh, 10 to the 20th power. I mean, so, I mean, that's, uh, you know, a billion, billion, a uh, hundred billion, billion, billion. <laughs> so I don't know. That's 10 to the 9 times it's 10 to the 9 times 10 squared, right? <laughs> uh, or 10, 10 to the 1. So, okay. Now, so, Larry... Oh, sorry. Yeah. So, so I was just going to say that these things are showering down on us all the time, and they're coming... From uh, from from space, I mean extrasolar space, I mean interstellar space, and so on. I mean, and they're they're coming down on us just like light comes down from on us uh, from the stars. No, so my understanding really was it came from supernovae. Uh, well, the really high energy ones, they but they're also coming from other stars. Oh, from other stars, okay. And that's other other kinds of things going on, black holes. I mean, all kinds of uh, processes that are. Uh, I think they're mostly, you know, most of them are protons, but you get also, you know, antiparticles as well. Now, Larry, you're more of a, like like Bob and myself, a lay person, I, I understand, in this whole debate, but you're a very well-read lay person in, in this particular topic. You've been covering it for years. Could you just give us a short overview about what um, the, the lay person out on the street might think of, of climate change, uh, the anthropogenic uh, climate claimers versus the... Uh, the scientists who basically say that it's the sun, stupid. Do you want to give us an overview? Well, there, there are basically two camps. Um, as, as, as you uh, stated, there's the camp that says humans are 
primarily responsible for uh, climate change, and that's usually carbon dioxide is the, the main culprit that they point to, but they also point to methane gas and, and other factors. And the other camp uh, says that carbon dioxide, these man-made uh, emissions, uh, probably play some role, but it's probably a very small role. And what dominates climate are uh, mega forces, the, the cosmic forces, the sun, um, the planetary movements. Uh, those are the two main competing theories. And until these experiments at, at, at CERN, the uh, the, those who were pushing the, the man-made theories were, uh, uh, were able to say that there aren't any uh, reputable organizations, there aren't any reputable scientists who disagree with us, that those who do disagree are, are at the fringe. Mm-hmm. And when scientists with, with, uh, with extraordinary credentials, such as Christopher uh, Essex, and, and he... He has a great deal of company. But when scientists like this would come forward, then the, the, the scientists uh, or, or the, the people in the, in, in the man-made uh, climate change camp would do what they could to uh, marginalize them. And they had a great deal of success, largely because uh, government sided with them and because the media um, tends to be intimidated by scientific issues and and went along with the with with what appeared to be the uh, a scientific uh, consensus. So what I you... think is a, is a game changer in the CERN experiment mm-hmm. is that CERN cannot, by anyone's standards, be considered a fringe organization. It is it it is one of the premier scientific organizations uh, in the world, and it's also one that 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 has is very well connected. With governments, in fact, it is a, a governmental organization. It, it, there, there are 60 countries that are are, are involved with CERN, and something like 8,000 scientists, 600 uh, universities, and national laboratories. What, 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 uh, so this is a multi-billion-dollar organization that um, has all the credibility in the world, and they now say that it's credible to pursue. Uh, avenues involving cosmic rays and the sun that's the game changer yeah you know it strikes me that when we talk about the two camps in this debate um you're talking in terms of scientific camps or different arguments to this scientific argument and yet when i when i stand back and i look at the bigger picture is it just me or am i the only one that notices that these two camps tend and i'm generalizing i know but they tend to line up on the left and right generally don't politically they? yes yeah. why would that be i mean, it mean uh, well first of all I, before we go down this path <laughs> i want to clarify <laughs> a couple a of things because i i don't really think there are are really quite two paths uh, two two camps i mean i think larry is sort of nominally correct i mean in the sense that that there is very definitely a single monolithic position of one kind and then there's another group which are I guarantee you that exists. I run into it all the time. Uh, yeah, there are well, some true I, believers I, I, out there. I, I think probably I've lived with it more than you. Have. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but the, the the other side of this uh, um, uh, is not monolithic. 
they have lots of different points of view. They argue among themselves. There's actually lots of different points of view, and, and I can listen to them arguing. And, and actually, all you have to do is really bring forward a scientific statement. No, but that is the other side. The other side the is, other side is everybody open... else. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> The right. other side is everybody else. There is one point of view which is absolutely true and should not be questioned, and then there's the there's everybody the else. And, and they're sort of uh, tossed aside as being, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Nine sagers, you know, deniers. I mean, this is this is the the the, the way in which they're dismissed. I mean, as as Larry said, I mean, they're 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 politically marginalized, which is a kind of um, from the scientific point of view is a kind of low brainstem thinking. I mean, and, and this is one of the problems even with uh, with the journalism business uh, too is that that it's not just that they're intimidated by scientists, but they buy into this idea that the uh, quality of the message is connected to the quality of the person. So all you have to do is to create these ad hominem uh, uh, arguments and you can uh, destroy the truth of something in people's minds, which is really uh, what the strategy has been of this monolithic group, is to go after the people. So, I mean, for instance, we recently had a... Uh, a, a article by David Suzuki going after my friend Willie Soon, in which he's sort of identifying where he got all his research grants from. But I mean, let's face it: if Mother Teresa said two plus two equals five, it doesn't make it so. I mean, just because someone's good doesn't make it right, and just because someone's bad, some dictator says two, uh, two plus two equals four, it doesn't mean I disagree with that. The, the the truth of something is independent of the person, and that is really, really essential to understanding scientific things. And the journalistic way of looking at the world often is about the credibility of the source, the per, being the person, where in science the source is nature itself. It's interesting that you say that. Um, I brought a couple of examples of exactly what you're saying, uh, how people launch on these ad hominem attacks to, to, to make their point. But you are, you're the co-author of Taken by Storm. That book came out very early in the whole... 2002. In the whole global Back warming Back in the days when, right. when we were completely alone. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's so, right. So yeah. you must have felt very ostracized in some ways from the scientific well, community. Well, that's and how I got denounced in Parliament. Of you know course. I mean? <laughs> so has that tide changed for you? Are, 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 uh, are you feeling like um, vindicated? Are you, feel, or are you still feeling well, the pressure? Well, actually, I had, I actually, when the, the Climate Gate uh, uh, business came out, I actually had uh, one colleague uh, stop me on, on, the, you know, on campus when I was walking across and shake, shook my hand and said that I've been vindicated. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 yeah, I mean, there, there is a, f a faction that functions in pariah, who functions according to the rules of pariahism, you know, and, but uh, uh, there are also a lot of really good scientists and, and uh, who... Even people who who support the sort of con the so-called so-called conventional thinking, uh, who are are very um, uh, thoughtful and courteous about it. So I think there is such a thing as a scientific ethic that some scient some scientists on all sides still follow. And so I have been largely protected from a lot of that because uh, um, scientists all understand mm -hmm. who are really doing research understand just how tricky and how problematic it is and how you can't really turn the whole thing into some sort of political sloganeering and and not end up with egg on your face eventually. Well, I'm glad things are turning around. It is at the bottom of the hour now. We do have to take a quick break for station identification and a few messages. And when we return, we'll be back to steer us all in the right direction on this issue. We'll be back right after this. Uh, let me get you a hot cup of tea. Oh. You know, I want to discuss Anthony with you. Mm. Oh, what was that? 
sounded like a foghorn. In the living room. <laughs> you backed into the teapot. Oh, excuse me. I, uh... Perhaps you could uh, steer me in the right direction. Oh, certainly. Oh, thank you. Oh, here we are. Oh. I do hope you'll come again on a clear day. Uh, yes, another time. Cloud is one of the smaller and most unusual experiments at CERN. Its purpose is to study the effect of cosmic rays on the formation of clouds in Earth's atmosphere. These new results from cloud uh, are important because we've made a number of uh, first observations of some very important processes that may be going on in the atmosphere. And they concern the formation of uh, embryonic clusters of particles that may eventually grow to become the seeds for cloud droplets. And in particular, we've measured the effects of cosmic rays, or the ions from cosmic rays, on the formation of these particles. And what we found is that cosmic rays do significantly enhance the production of these particles. Uh, we've also managed to measure, for the very first time, exactly the molecules that are participating uh, in these uh, so-called critical clusters, which uh, are important because uh, at this size, the clusters typically will evaporate, and we've discovered exactly why it is that they don't evaporate and grow above this crit critical size. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We're joined in studio by Professor Christopher Essex here at the University of Western Ontario and on the line by Larry Solomon, Executive Director of Energy Probe and writer, columnist for the National Post. Now, before the break, we went over some of the scientific um, discoveries that um, Jasper Kirkby, who, by the way, that was you just listened to in that little clip, uh, talking about his discovery in a paper that um, he wrote called Role of Sulfuric Acid, Ammonia, and Galactic Cosmic Rays in Atmospheric Aerosol Nucleation. Oh, For those one. of you who want to go look that <laughs> up in nature. <laughs> but um, I think what, what I'd like to get across to the listeners out there is the role that the sun plays, not so much the cosmic rays. We, we're, okay, we're given the fact that cosmic rays seed the clouds, but now we have variations in how much cosmic rays reach the atmosphere, giving us warming and cooling. Larry, you, you're pretty um, well-versed on, on this particular effect of reading your article here, and I'd, rather than quote from your article, why don't you tell us how the sun's activity correlates with cosmic ray nucleation of cloud formation here on Earth. And also, maybe if you can throw in the Maunder Minimum as example. Well, the, the, the sun uh, uh, controls, uh, to a large extent, the cosmic rays that, that, that come into uh, to Earth. When the sun is strong, uh, its magnetic field is strong, and, and that field then acts as a, as a shield, and it prevents... Uh, uh, as many cosmic rays from, from coming into Earth's atmosphere. And when the sun is weaker, uh, the magnetic field is weaker, and more cosmic rays uh, can come in. So the, the, the important mechanism is uh, the seeding of the clouds through cosmic rays, and what turns those cosmic rays on and off uh, is the, the strength uh, of the sun. 
and the activity of the sun. Now, would sunspots be an indication of solar activity? I know that right at the moment we're uh, approaching solar maximum, aren't we, in the next couple of years? There are sunspots out there right now if anybody wants to go with a proper solar filter and have a look at them. Um, so don't do this at home. Right now we're approaching solar maximum. You can so project it from a telescope. You don't need a filter. <laughs> that's well. I have a filter on mine. Yeah. <laughs> so I look actually through I'll a talk filter. To you of after. It. Okay. Well, no, I'm not going to project it because I use a diagonal. But anyway, let's, okay. we're just getting off topic there. Mm. But um, since we're approaching solar maximum now in the next few years, and an 11-year solar cycle, does that mean that we're going to have uh, when when we um, reach solar maximum, we're going to have less cosmic rays hitting the atmosphere, less clouds, and therefore warmer temperatures. Is that the idea, Larry? Well, I, I, I don't feel confident to, uh, to describe that, that mechanism, but, but uh, what I can say is that historically there's been this correlation between sus- sunspots and, uh, and temperatures on Earth. And uh, during the time of the Little Ice Age, the sunspots all but uh, disappeared, uh, and that became that became a, a period of 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 cold. So that uh, was that the Maunder minimum I mentioned earlier. That's right. Yeah. So that was from 1645 to 1715. There was virtually very little solar activity, and I think people were skating on the Thames River in London, weren't they, because of the cold? That's right. That was the, that was the time when the Dutch uh, invented the ice skate. <laughs> And uh, uh, you could cross uh, from Manhattan to Staten Island um, on on ice. You didn't uh, you didn't need a boat. Now, wouldn't you think that such a, a very obvious correlation um, would be accepted by the public at large as as look? It's that huge ball of hydrogen gas over your head that's causing our climate. Uh, changes rather than that idling car at the Tim Hortons. Um, does the does the population at large have a, a death wish, a doomsday desire to actually uh, to to listen to the IPCC and the United Nations say that um, we're to blame for destroying the Earth? It's not that big ball of gas in the sky that beats down on us and it's so bright you can't even look at it. It's you. You capitalist person, you. <laughs> well, the people think that uh, it's it's low brainstem thinking. That's basically what it boils down to. Yeah, yeah. It's just really people are not thinking things through. A lot of the things the IPCC says in terms of their their main scientific reports are actually not that bad. I mean, if you actually read it through, and in fact, I had a little bit of an amusing magic trick when I was in uh, in Sicily uh, this uh, summer. I I put on the screen. Uh, uh, and a direct quote from the IPCC's third assessment report where it says explicitly that we will never, I mean, never be able to forecast climate. Never. Never. So these are scientists so, so, saying so, something. Well, something that's like actually that. straight from the so-called consensus position, right? Uh-huh. So you put it up on the screen, and the really interesting thing is to see how all the people supporting the, the, uh, the doctrine of certainty uh, immediately start attacking the IPCC, and the people who normally attack the IPCC mm. suddenly are defending it. It's quite amusing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm glad uh, you're deriving uh, pre- pleasure from it, but that, it's yeah. actually very, very important for people to understand that there are political machinations. Of course it is, but you, know, you have to understand here. it from my perspective. I've been you know, submerged in this for 20, 25 mm-hmm. years, and it's the madness of it all has sort of started to affect me. <laughs> but, but, I mean, they... they um, the, the underlying um, concept here is that the reason why uh, 
the sun's effects, I mean, you talk solar activity. What does that actually mean? Uh, the, the correlations between uh, what goes on on the Earth and sun activity has been around for a long time. That, and was, a lot my of, that was my next question. Some and, people use the word strong, some use weak, uh, and yeah. then there's active and well, inactive. Here's, here's, here's the problem with that, and, and, and this is the historical background and the reason why we've gotten to this sort of complicated moment is because um, meteorologists have known about this a long time, and I know that Svensmark told me himself that, I mean, he was really intrigued by this correlation, and he wanted to look for a mechanism, and I think he did a really good job of coming up with something really original um, um, in terms of the full uh, uh, thrust of, the, of his uh, vision. Um, but the, the, uh, there have been generations of meteorologists who have tried very hard to find the link because one of the big problems is the sunlight that comes down on us um, the, is measured at the ground, and it's the amount is is called the, this is the term is called the solar constant, because the amount of energy that comes down is very very constant, um, despite the cycles in in sunspots. So it's in fact only like a fraction of a percent or a percent change in brightness that that, that is actually observed at all, and the energetics of that. Uh, this is the way people think. I mean, a lot of uh, people, meteorologists and climatologists, think in terms of the energy of it. And they say the energy is too small. The energy variations are too small. There has to be some other mechanism. And so they people have looked for mechanisms in vain for many, many years. And so that's one of the reasons why the solar, you know, it's the sun stupid hasn't really, really worked because people haven't been able to come up with a mechanism. It's fine to quote correlations, but that doesn't prove causality. causality. Mm -hmm. And there's a very different kind of uh, situation. So so what is really remarkable here is that there is uh, a, a long chain of reasoning uh, that leads to a possible cause. Uh, we've only nailed down one or two uh, of the, the stepping stones in this chain of reasoning, or links in the chain of reasoning, uh, uh, to make the metaphor correct. Uh, but we don't have them all yet. So even at this stage, it isn't. But the thing that's wonderful about it is that someone is actually doing something, and they we have something that's plausible here. Well, you, you called it a complicated moment. Let's make this our complicated moment right now, because we do have a, a four-minute clip here from the CERN News Group there who uh, are talking about the actual process that is actually happening here. And I think that as we listen to it, I was actually able to follow it as it went along. And I think the main, no, because it makes, it kind of makes sense, each yeah, step, I just keep so. track, each step. But I find it amazing that you could take this complexity and try and reduce it to some kind of a political debate. And I think that's something you have to keep at the back of your mind as we listen to this. And we'll come, no, we'll come back after. It gets reduced even more for the political well, debate. <laughs> well, sure. But we'll be back right after this. Right. Each cubic centimeter of Earth's atmosphere contains hundreds of tiny solid or liquid particles known as aerosols. Most of these particles are too small to be seen with an ordinary microscope, but without them, there would be no clouds in the sky. Up to half these aerosols may originate from trace atmospheric vapours, which condense to form tiny molecular clusters. Once formed, the aerosols may eventually grow large enough to seed cloud droplets. However, this process is poorly measured and is limiting our understanding of clouds. Now it's being studied under controlled laboratory conditions by the cloud experiment at CERN. Atmospheric observations indicate that sulfuric acid vapor is required to form the embryonic aerosols. 
even though the atmosphere contains only extremely small amounts, less than one in a million million molecules. At high altitudes, above 5,000 meters, where the temperature is below minus 25 degrees Celsius, these molecules collide together and stick to each other for a short time, but then generally separate. So something else must be helping them stick together. The cloud experiment has found that cosmic rays will do this. Cosmic rays are high-energy subatomic particles generated by supernovae in the Milky Way galaxy. They continuously rain down on our planet and collide with nuclei high in the atmosphere, producing showers of secondary subatomic particles. When this cosmic rain passes through the atmosphere, it knocks electrons out of some molecules which then attach to others. This results in positively or negatively charged molecules known as ions. When one of the negative ions collides with a molecule of sulfuric acid, the acid molecule becomes negatively charged. This enables it to attract other sulfuric acid molecules, causing them to collide at a higher rate. And when they do collide, the sulfuric acid molecules stick together for a longer time. With more sulfuric acid and water molecules arriving, a charged cluster forms and grows. Once it exceeds a critical mass containing only a few molecules, the cluster becomes a stable aerosol. Rather than evaporating, it then continues to grow by further condensation of sulfuric acid and other vapours, in particular organic vapours produced, for example, by trees. The cloud experiment has found that charged clusters are up to 10 times more efficient than neutral clusters at forming stable aerosols. Many of these newly formed aerosols are lost by coagulating with pre-existing aerosols, but some may grow big enough to form new seeds for cloud droplets. These are known as cloud condensation nuclei, or CCN. The CCN are at least 50 nanometer in size, that is more than 50 millionths of a millimeter. When the relative humidity of the surrounding air reaches slightly above 100%, the CCN will see droplets and a cloud will form. Depending on the temperature and the nature of the CCN, either a liquid droplet or an ice particle forms. At high altitudes, the ice particles form cirrus clouds. The cloud experiment has found that in the lowest one kilometer of the atmosphere, known as the boundary layer, this phenomena happens in a different way. In the warmer temperatures of the boundary layer, charged sulfuric acid clusters grow no larger than three molecules, while bigger ones simply evaporate back to three molecules. However, if a molecule of ammonia collides with a cluster shortly after a sulfuric acid molecule has arrived, it stabilizes the acid molecule and the cluster can continue to grow. Eventually, the cluster exceeds the critical size and becomes stable against evaporation. Then, once again, some of the newly formed aerosol may eventually grow large enough to form new cloud condensation nuclei and so modify low-altitude clouds. The cloud experiment has found that atmospheric levels of ammonia are insufficient to account for the observed rates of aerosol formation at low altitudes. So other molecules must be involved. They are likely to be organic molecules, but their exact identity remains a mystery. Investigating organic molecules and also aerosol growth to CCN sizes are the next steps for the cloud experiment. Simple, huh?
You got all that? Because there's going to be a test later yeah. on. <laughs> but I, I, actually, I, having read it myself, I, I do think it's not complex. But what I do understand is that the entire system of climate change is a very dynamic and very complex system. And to boil it down into just a few... Um, to a few political statements is, is, is courting with danger. Larry, I want to ask you, Larry Solomon on the line there, I want to ask you if, like Professor Christopher Essex, when he wrote that book um, and got some flack over it and denounced in Parliament, uh, whether or not you, as a writer, um, have, have, have gotten some flack over your position on this, have you? Uh, no. No. Hmm. Uh, I ex- well, I, there's been a little, but I, I actually expected a lot. And I, I work for an environmental organization, Energy Probe. Mm-hmm. My, my colleagues were concerned about what this book would do to Energy Probe's recommendation. The board was wondering what what this book uh, would do. Now you're referring uh, to the deniers, right? I'm referring that's right to the deniers, which became the the number one environmental bestseller in Canada and the U.S. Uh, but to my surprise. Uh, I was not at all ostracized by uh, by other environmentalists. So our relations with Greenpeace, with other other environmentalists, are the, the same as, as always. Now, is that Patrick Moore of Greenpeace or Greenpeace proper? <laughs> no, this is this is uh, <laughs> this is the Greenpeace uh, proper. Oh, we, I see. We have we, we run operations with uh, with Greenpeace and with uh, and with other environmental organizations. Um, uh, and I, I don't want to represent what any individual environmental group has to say about about our work, but I can but I can say that um, uh, that there really isn't dispute, um, certainly not among among most that I've talked to about what I what uh, what what uh, my views are. There's a, um, actually an article, Larry, in the National Post that you're probably familiar with from September 27th. A little tiny piece here, Nobel laureate Ivar Geiver. Am I pronouncing that right, Chris? Geiver. It's, you know? it's, uh, it's Norwegian. <laughs> well, then I'm probably not pronouncing it right. Um, but anyway, he was a Nobel laureate and uh, resigned from the American Physical Society because they came out with a statement, quote, the evidence is incontrovertible, global warming is occurring. And... Um, the Nobel laureate said incontrovertible is not a scientific word. And he objected to the mentality that would basically say something that uh, in a scientific sense is cut and dried, black and white, don't even bother investigating anymore. So are you feeling that atmosphere out there too, Larry, that there is a an intransigence on the part of uh, global uh, climate claimers versus global climate uh, deniers? There's an intransigence? No, I, my... What, what I sense most of all is that there's an opportunism. So a very common attitude, for example, among environmentalists is who cares if CO2 uh, is, is a driver of climate change or not? We don't like tar sands. We don't like oil. We don't like cars. We don't like uh, suburbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a magic bullet that solves our problems for us. If you talk to people in the development community, uh, they say, well, who cares if, if CO2 really does this damage? This is a wonderful mechanism for transferring wealth from the rich countries to the poor countries. Right. If you talk to some economists, they're very happy with this because, uh, be, because they, uh, they, they like the idea of, a, of an economy that's, that's, that's based on 
on on on on a commodity as as opposed to the the the, the, the current economic regime. Uh, there are a lot. Everyone has some. There's something for almost everyone in this climate change debate, and. Yes. For yeah, that except reason, for the I scientists, think, I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you feel left out, do you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, one, one of the problems here is I, I, I think that, that this kind of um, uh, opportunism uh, has done great harm to science. Uh, I think that the, the atmosphere is in certain circles, especially among the official science types, uh, is, can be very poisonous. Uh, among regular scientists, uh, I don't think there's such a problem, but but I do think that uh, a lot of research that should have been done has not been done uh, because uh, the, it's not uh, part of this kind of movement which is completely external to any kind of scientific motivations. And um, um, so there are fields of science that are, are completely unpopulated with people who should be working there. And I think that's been going on for a couple of decades. And I think probably as far as our progress and understanding what's going on has probably been set back a generation. You know, we're getting very close to the top of the hour now, and, and you know, just listening to this whole process of how our climate actually does change. As we say, it wasn't as simple as we thought, just the sun point. It, the actual process is very complex. And, you know, I cannot help but feel, and I'm wondering if it's appropriate, uh, some sense of wonderment um, at the knowledge that something as important to us as our whole ecosystem, cloud formation, is dependent on something like cosmic rays, which is not something we're, we're really aware of on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's not the connection we would directly make if we were just observing on you know, by ourselves. I don't think you're making a mistake. No? I think it is a wonderful process, and I think people should be awed and by the complexity of it And we don't even understand a lot of things... Very basic discoveries have been made. Very re even recently, I, I I was stunned to hear that uh, thunderstorms have been observed to produce gamma rays and antiparticles. Mm. Wow! So positrons are being produced <laughs> in energetic thunderstorms. I mean that. I, you know, no meteorologist would normally have ever thought of that. As a matter so. of fact, uh, even more awe-inspiring, I guess, is part of these cosmic rays is antimatter. Is that not right? We oh, have yes. antimatter actually yes. bombarding our uh, upper atmosphere. Yep. And then, of course, it it, uh, it interacts and you get showers of uh, secondary particles from the collisions. So, yeah, uh, it's it's a very, um, a very uh, subtle thing. And we haven't even talked about uh, the long-term natural variability uh, aspect of it. So even if this uh, um, uh, solar business doesn't pan out in quite the extent to, that we would like it to, there's this whole area that has not really been properly explored, which is this point I was making long-term internal natural variability, which is that the thing is just a sort of a dynamical thing that lives and breathes. We don't really understand that. Climate models can't really uh, capture that, and we don't really have a good physical grasp of that. Um, but the thing is that it's uh, an out-of-equilibrium out of dynamical system of immense complexity, um, which could be driven by small effects uh, and so the fact we have to handle all of these small effects from cosmic rays to, uh, you know, whether you, you know, how you happen to shave in the morning could all have some kind of uh, uh, mix in the system, you know. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very profound thing, and it's uh, definitely beyond us. I mean, the, there are at least two uh, major problems that are fundamental to this subject, which are 
uh, among the clay millennium problems, which are million-dollar prizes to solve. One of them is the solving the basic fluid dynamical equations. The other one is the complexity pro uh, issue. Anyway. Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because, uh, you know, the, all the politics seems to destroy the sense of wonderment about, about the science, you know, and that's, that's what really uh, depresses me a bit. Well, is it all over for Al Gore? Is that, can we say yes or no to that before, <laughs> before we end the show? It's I all think, his fault. I think we can always, Al Gore will always have a, an audience. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you very much, uh, Christopher Essex, Professor Christopher Essex here in studio of the University of Western Ontario. And thank you, Larry Solomon on the line, for bringing to light this uh, momentous discovery uh, from CERN. Thank you both very much. Welcome. Thank you. And I think that's it for yep. today, Bob. We've got to go. Hopefully our audience will join us again next week. And you know what to do between now and then. Be right, act right, do right, stay right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Take care. <laughs> Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be Oh, uh, you'd like to get uh, out of the house? Yeah, I sure, I sure would, yeah All right Oh, okay, sure, just the two of us, huh? That's a wonderful idea Oh, I can't go out of the house with my hair like this What? It looks as if I had sequins over my eyebrows. <laughs> yes, well, uh, that's the atmospheric conditions combined with the creptactic light sequentials. Creptactic light sequentials. Isn't science wonderful? It's nice. Yeah, it looks fine. You know, Anthony, there's something about the Cocoa Beach climate that is amazing. Yeah, it's enough to curl your hair. <laughs> <laughs>